Today we are tackling part six of our seven-part series on the journey through the Bible. Uh, if you're visiting with us for the first time, we've been taking uh, everybody through kind of a 30,000-foot view of the Bible. So we've covered 43 books in the last five weeks, and we're going to quickly cover the next 22 this evening. So if you think we need prayer, the answer is yes. Uh, I have no idea how this is going to work out because this morning was completely different between the first and the second service. So we'll just see uh, how we go along this evening. But we're going to be tackling what we call the epistles or the letters in the New Testament. So last week, uh, Sue spoke about the first four books of the New Testament, uh, which we call the Gospels. They're bi- basically the biographies of Jesus written by four different men. And so what we're going to take a look at now in terms of the next 22 books, these are all letters that were written mostly by people like the Apostle Paul or Paul the Apostle, as well as James and Jude, the half-brothers of Jesus, Peter and John. Uh, And they were writing these letters to churches or to groups of Christians um, or to individuals as in the case of Philemon or seeing as we're in South Africa, Philemon. Um, so we're going to kind of try and just, just scan over some of these books. But just to give you a bit of an overview, and by the way, if you uh, have version, the Bible app on your phone, then I would strongly encourage you, if you're able to fight the temptation to go on a social media, to uh, follow along on uh, the version Bible app. There are some extra notes in there that I'm not going to get to. So just in case you do want to go through that during the week, make sure that you hit save on the top right hand corner. So just, just to give you some perspective quickly, when you are reading one of these letters, I want to remind you that they are literally, they were letters written into a particular context. So just like you wouldn't probably break a letter that someone sent to you up into 17 different pieces, you'd probably read it as much as possible in one uh, sitting. I would encourage you where possible to also just, just try, even if it's just at, at a glance, to actually read the whole letter at first, before trying to you know, tackle the individual parts and before you get bogged down with some of the questions, because there will be questions. In my opinion, if you're reading the Bible properly, it's going to provoke questions. It's going to mess with your head. It's going to mess with some of your thoughts and your values. And, and that's not a bad thing. You should feel safe and comfortable there. But at first, at least get an overview before getting kind of stuck into and bogged down into some of the tensions that you may come across. Um, you want to ask yourself questions like who, when, why, what, etc. So, so you want to know who's writing, who is it being written to, uh, when was it written. So, so there's a context towards everything that is being written, as we'll see uh, in a few moments with a couple of examples. And why? Why is it being written? What, what problem was being addressed in this letter? Because uh, there was almost always... A problem being addressed. The reason that they were being written in, in more cases than not was to actually try and correct something or to address something or to encourage something that was going on. And then, of course, to actually try and wrestle over what is being said. And that's where a good study Bible is helpful or a good commentary. As far as study Bibles go, we, we often recommend the Life Application Study Bible. Okay, are you guys ready for us to dive in? You okay? Hope you had your coffee. We're going to start with the book of Acts, or in some cases it'll be referred to as the Acts of the Apostles or Acts of the Holy Spirit. But Acts is a book that was written by Luke, uh, who was a doctor. He also wrote one of the Gospels, one of the biographies of Jesus, also that covered his name or carried his name, Luke. And he's writing to a friend of his by the name of Theophilus. We see this in the very first verse of Acts chapter 1, verse 1. In my first book, I told you, Theophilus, about everything Jesus began to do and teach until the day he was taken up to heaven after giving 
His chosen apostles further instructions through the Holy Spirit. So, so he, all, all Luke is doing as far as he knows at that stage is he's giving a historical account to his friend Theophilus to explain to him like what's happened since Jesus was resurrected and eventually ascended. So, so he's giving an account to this friend of his. He's like, I was there. I, was, I, had a, I had a front row seat to what was happening after Jesus spoke to his disciples and told them to wait in Jerusalem. And then they waited and then the Holy Spirit came and then they were meant to go. They didn't, but then they did eventually. And they, they you know, had all these different persecutions and imprisonments and, and missions journeys. And they were wrestling over justice and mercy and, and, and working through the whole Jewish and the non-Jewish thing. He, he's giving a first-hand account of what's going on as the very, very, very first fledgling group of Christians started to gather together. And as churches were planted, and, and just some of the stuff that went on with it. It's a fascinating story. It is well worth reading. It's even one of those books. Now, I don't think that all of the letters in the New Testament are easy to do this with, but Acts is one of those books that if you're really struggling for time, if you're sitting on the bus or in the taxi or you have a long commute in the morning, I would listen to the audio version on you version. Like you can listen to the book of Acts in no time and, you, and it's like you're listening to this incredible story of what was happening with the first and the early Christians. So Acts 1 verse 8, um, he records, and this is probably the key verse of the book of Acts where Luke records Jesus saying the following to his disciples, to his followers. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. And you will be my witnesses, telling people about me everywhere. Now, this is important, okay? So he's saying, when you, when you allow the Holy Spirit to come into your life in the sense of a, of a baptism, he's going to actually give you power not to be weird or nutty or fruity or eccentric. He's actually going to give you power, so effectiveness, authority, a, a winsomeness to actually be effective witnesses for me. Like that, that's, that was one of the things that was, that was meant to set those early Christians apart was, was not, not how crazy they were or, or nutty they were, but but, there were, but, but this conviction, this confidence, this peace, this kindness, this generosity that couldn't help but share a good reflection of who Jesus was. And so the whole book of Acts is all about God's, God's attempt to get his people out. Because often God's people just want to stay in. And he was really concerned with them getting out and, and sharing the message. Well, if you know the story of the book of Acts, they, they were like, that sounds great. And then they did nothing for about seven chapters. And then in chapter seven, uh, Stephen is martyred. He's the first early Christian martyr. And then we've seen in Acts 1 verse 8 that God says, go. They didn't. So then in Acts 8 verse 1, we see that I would, I would argue, this is my personal opinion, that God allowed persecution to come over the church. And then they went. In Acts 8 verse 1, it says a great wave of persecution began that day. Sweeping over the church in Jerusalem and all the believers except the apostles. I do like this as well, by the way, that it was just ordinary people, just Christians. It wasn't, it wasn't, it wasn't the, the apostles, those that had been closest to Jesus. It wasn't those that had theological degrees. It was just the people were scattered through the regions of Judea and Samaria. And they went sharing the good news. And that's how the gospel got to the far reaches of the earth, by going. And it cannot be overstated. And if you read the book of Acts carefully, you can't miss 
how committed God is to, to crossing every boundary, every chasm, every divide between people of different ethnicities, different socioeconomic backgrounds, different educational levels, different languages, different races, different genders. God is absolutely committed to, to doing everything that he can to getting the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ, that we are saved by faith, that we are saved by grace, to get that out to people. And so it's just an incredible report that includes arrests, imprisonments, beatings, riots, narrow escapes, resurrection from the dead, a shipwreck, trial scenes, and rescues. Uh, in one case, uh, as I mentioned, someone was resurrected from the dead because Paul was preaching really long. This is legit, one night. He's preaching very long before he has to leave town and go somewhere else. And so one of the young guys falls asleep in the windowsill. They're on the first floor. He falls to his death. Paul's like, it's okay, we'll go down, bring him back to life, take him back up again, and he carries on preaching. So I don't feel bad at all if I preach a little bit longer than you might ideally prefer. All right, so we're going to move on to the book of Romans real quickly. Again, remember, this is the 30,000-foot view. The 10,000-foot view, take a look at the Bible Project videos. And then the street-level view, let's get into the Bible, read the Bible for ourselves, wrestle over it. The book of Romans is written by Paul the Apostle. Most of the New Testament epistles were written by Paul, unless I say otherwise, just assume that it was written by him. And the book of Romans is considered by many to be the most influential book in Christian history. It brought about the Reformation 500 years ago where, where, where legalism and religiosity that was killing people was, was challenged as Martin Luther was wrestling over this book, the book of Romans. And he's like, wait, this keeps talking about, about salvation by grace through faith. And, and this, this revelation led Martin Luther, amongst others, to usher in a whole new season in the history of Christianity as people were taken back to the original story of the Bible. Because remember, well, some of you would know that, that, that in those days, the Bible wasn't in the hand. Listen, the Bible being in the hand of the average person is a modern-day privilege that I think we take for granted. The fact that I have access to probably hundreds of versions of just the English Bible on my phone or on a device, it's so easy for us to take it for granted. Remember, the printing press wasn't created that long ago. Like, like the, the Bible wasn't in people's hands. It wasn't in their language. We are in an incredible moment in history. I, I wonder, I can't help but wondering if people up until a couple of hundred years ago would look at us and marvel, like, how do they not know what's in their hand? Like, how do they allow it to just sit there amongst the other apps and never to be opened or just to sit on a shelf somewhere so that, you know, when they need to, they can, it's like, how are they not devouring this book that he's made so readily? I mean, we argue over the versions of the English translation that we prefer. It's like, are you kidding? You mean they're versions to argue over? Anyway, I'm getting distracted. So Romans, Romans has played a significant role and um, just for time's sake, I'm not going to go through it now, but, but I love how, how in the middle of the book, I mean, it's rich in theology, rich in doctrine, along with a couple of other epistles in the New Testament, but kind of in the middle. So 16 chapters, and then if you hit chapter 7 and 8, you see this incredible rawness, this vulnerability, where you see Paul um, kind of addressing this wrestle, this tension that we should all be able to relate to. Where the things I want to do, I don't do. And the things I do want to do, I don't do. And, 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 and where we are needing something more than just willpower. 
where we're needing supernatural power. And then he goes into the first verse of, of Romans chapter 8, where he says, so, so therefore, there's now no condemnation. He's saying that, that, that if we are in a relationship with Jesus, that, that wrestle that is just described in the last section of chapter 7, he's like, no, no, we've got hope in Jesus. And Romans chapter 8 is arguably the most powerful chapter. Now, it's a matter of opinion, but it's arguably the most powerful chapter in the Bible. It's worth, in fact, I know, I know of one pastor who literally spent an entire year just meditating on Romans chapter 8. There's just so much in there. It starts off with there's no condemnation. It ends with there's no separation from God for those who are in Christ Jesus. Nicky Gumbel, who founded Alpha, says of this particular section of this chapter that if Romans is the Himalayas of the New Testament, then Romans 8 is its Mount Everest. And at its summit is these verses where Paul describes how those who are led by the Spirit are the children of God. And he's referring to Romans 8 verse 14 to 17, where it says, for all who are led by the Spirit of God are children of God. So you have not received a spirit that makes you fearful slaves. And again, we can, we can scan over that, but some of you know what it's like when you feel like you've let God down. If you feel like you've failed, if you feel like you've, you've missed the mark, you know what it's like to feel fearful, to feel insecure, to feel like maybe, like maybe God's had enough of me. It's significant that he's saying that we don't have to feel like fearful slaves. Instead, you received God's spirit when he adopted you as his own children. He's not saying like you're just friends, you're chummies. He's saying, no, no, no. And again, again, if you understand the context of the day, he's writing in a culture where, where in the Roman Empire, if you were a Roman citizen, which Paul was, by the way, if you were to adopt somebody... If you were to adopt a child, if you were to, to adopt an heir, it, it gave you the exact same. And I mean, it's, it's still true today, but I just think somehow we've like lost the significance of this. Where he's, saying, where he's saying that to be adopted into this family, you have every right, every authority. You have a full inheritance. You're not a fearful slave. You're a son. You're a daughter. It's significant. Instead, you receive God's spirit when he adopted you as his own children. Now we call him Abba, Father. Or in today's context, I think it would be better to say Dad or Papa, depending on, on your culture, or something that is truly personal and affectionate. It's significant. For his spirit joins with our spirit to affirm that we are God's children. And since we are his children, we are his heirs. In fact, together with Christ, we are heirs of God's glory. But if we are to share his glory, this is the part we don't like, we must also share his suffering. And it's amazing to actually see just how often in the New Testament. In fact, to even just take note of how many of these letters were written to address the challenge and the pain of suffering, persecution. Tradition holds that, that, that almost every one of Jesus, what we call his disciples or his apostles, died terrible, martyrs' deaths. Peter, tradition holds, was, was so determined to honor Jesus, that he, ref well, refused, I suppose, as much as he could to be crucified normally. He asked if they could crucify him upside down, rather. Like, like if, I mean, I don't even want to get into the details of some of the ways that some of these guys died. They, 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 had, they had a healthy theology that this life is not all there is to life, that this is a campsite, that this is temporary. That eternity is worth it. That God is worth it. That I can trust Jesus 
anyway. So I think it's important that we don't skip over some of those passages that talk about the fact that Christians can have to deal with suffering. There's so much in Romans. Unfortunately, we can only do a quick little flyover. And we move on to 1 and 2 Corinthians, which is also written by Paul. And in 1 Corinthians in particular, again, he's speaking into a situation that is messy. Probably, if you were speaking into today's context, it might be something similar to having a church like on the strip in Las Vegas, where it's just chaos and it's just messy. Um, like, like the culture of the day in, in this city of Corinth was just chaotic and it was influencing the church. In fact, uh, Paul addresses at least 11 different issues in his letter to them. Things like people who were divided into camps based on what teachers they liked and which leaders they wanted to follow. Like, no, no, I like that pastor. He's a jerk. No, I like that leader. No, I don't like. And again, you think, that's hectic. Go on to Instagram. I am shocked, even, even at, at sort of Christian articles and news sites, at the amount of venom and poison that people post. Forgive me if you're one of those people that post, but to me it's like, is it only lunatics that post on these things? People that are like filled with hatred, and anyway, it's just... So you'd think 2,000 years later that, that we would have learned, but apparently we haven't. One member was having an affair with his stepmother, and instead of confronting him, many in the church boasted of his freedom in Christ to behave that way. This is in the Bible. The Bible's not boring. Take a look at 1 Corinthians 5 to see how Paul suggested they handle it. Some were engaging in relations with the pagan temple prostitutes. That's where, that's where some of the teaching in the Bible comes from, where in 1 Corinthians 6, Paul is saying, listen, like, don't, don't you know that if you're going to be sexually intimate with someone, you become one with them? And, and where God has created this, this unit. So for you just to go from one prostitute to another person to another person, that's in 1 Corinthians Six. And then you go in 1 Corinthians 7 where others have gone to the opposite extreme and felt like they should give up sex completely, including with their spouse. And you can imagine that some spouses weren't all that happy about that idea. So Paul addresses that. Believers were suing each other in the courts. The Lord's Supper had become a drunk party. There were fights over the roles of men and women in the church. And that's only 2,000 years ago, right? That's not modern. Then on top of that, they had gone wild at their worship services, misusing the gift of tongues, and some had stopped believing in the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. Like, like there's some significant issues. It's rich. There's a lot to learn and to glean from in First Corinthians. In fact, some of you will be familiar with the passage of One Corinthians 13, where it's this sort of you know we, we know it as this love chapter, and you might have heard it often quoted at weddings. I, I've often used it at weddings because it's a great passage to to use. But it's not actually written in the context of marriage. It's not written in the context of weddings. It's actually written in the context of people serving together and struggling with one another. So when Paul says, hey, you need to love one another, love is patient, love is kind. He's not talking to a husband and a wife. He's talking to, to the worship team members. He's talking to the people that are serving together in the social justice area. He's talking to the people that have to make coffee and they have to like bear with the person that comes late on their team. And he's like, hey, guys, guys, don't keep a record of wrongs. He's like, he's like don't rejoice when evil wins out. Love never gives up. Love never loses faith. Love... Love always believes the best. At the beginning of that chapter, he says, hey, hey, you can do all these things. Because the chapter before that, 1 Corinthians chapter 12, is talking about the spiritual gifts. All these incredible ways that God supernaturally empowers you to do things. And then he like suddenly pauses like, and he goes to the beginning of, of 1 Corinthians 13. And he says, hey, 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 you can do all this stuff. 
You can give everything away to the poor. You can, even, you, can even have, you can even lay your life down, your body down to be burnt at the stake. You can speak the languages of the angels. But if you don't love others, you're nothing but a resounding gong, a clanging cymbal. You're, in other words, you're saying you're, a, you're an annoying noise. So you can do good without love, you're nothing. You're, you're actually annoying. Paul wasn't shy, just so you know. Paul's like, he claps you and then he moves on to, to the next thing. So again, I'm saying it's so important for us to read these things in context. When he warns them in chapter 14 from, from, from not being insensitive and inconsiderate to the use of gifts in uh, church gatherings in the way that things like tongues are being used, etc. He's like, guys, can we, just, can we actually care more about outsiders and insiders that we don't do anything that's going to unnecessarily distract or freak people out? Paul's getting a a hard across. The second letter, which is not actually the second letter, but I don't want to confuse you. There's more than the two letters that were written. It's just that one and two Corinthians are the only ones that were found. That might mess with some of your heads. But second Corinthians is actually a letter that was written in defense of people that were infiltrating the church in Corinth sometime later and where they were trying to undermine Paul and his influence and his teaching. And so he writes to encourage the majority who were still believing. He, he challenges them to honor a commitment to an offering to the struggling Christians in Jerusalem. And then he challenges the minority that, that are causing this division. Guys, I've got to tell you, God took division in churches very seriously. Like very seriously. And people leading others away from him, very seriously. People causing others to stumble, very seriously. That's not like just in one or two of the letters. Anyway, that's for free. We're going to move on to the book of Galatians, which is also written by Paul, also very rich in doctrine and in theology. And, and effectively, it's addressing uh, what, is, what we're called Judaizers. So these, these are people that had, that had become Christians from the Jewish faith. So they were following Judaism and they were still trying to adapt the Old, the old Testament systems the Old Testament uh, routines and rituals and protocols, and they, were, and they were trying to put these yokes onto now new non-Jewish Christians. And so Paul's like saying, no, 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 no. You can't add anything to the cross. You can't add anything to what Jesus has done. Jesus has fulfilled that. So, so, so they're trying to get these, these non-Jewish people that, that are becoming Christians to get circumcised. And they're like, uh-uh. Like, That's not a nice idea. And, and so Paul's saying not so much that it's an issue with getting circumcised. He's saying it's an issue with putting your faith in getting circumcised. And again, you may think, well, okay, we're way past that. But you'll be amazed at how many people put their faith in getting baptized. Not as a public declaration of a private decision, but as a, as, as a kind of part means to guarantee salvation. It's when we put our faith in that thing. It's when, it's when you are f- fearful of a child that is about to pass away if it hasn't been christened or baptized yet. As though, as though that act, as though that ritual is going to save someone, anyone. So that's why I say it's important for us to understand the context and then to try and bring it into the here and now. Where do we do that here and now? Anyway, great passages in Galatians chapter 5. We, we see the description of what many know as the fruit of the Spirit. We, we pause like, if you're living free, if you're... If you have the influence of the Holy Spirit in your life, then, then you actually can't help it. You're going to overflow with an increasing measure of love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and gentleness and self-control. 
And I honestly do believe that as Christians, we need to be very careful that we don't ever measure our maturity by spiritual gifts. We need to constantly take stock of spiritual fruit. So whether or not I'm loving more, whether or not I'm more patient, because I can know more and be, a, and be a bigger jerk. I can preach more and be less patient. I can, I can have a larger platform and be more manipulative and have a bigger ego. God doesn't care what you see publicly. God cares about what he sees very, 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 very privately. So the fruit of the Spirit is a really, really good litmus test. All right, moving on to the book of Ephesians. By the way, these books, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, these are much shorter reads. These are a little bit easier to read in one sitting as opposed to some of the longer books. But Ephesians, interestingly, is not written to one sort of dedicated situation in terms of correcting one problem, but it's almost like a a discipleship letter. And so Paul is trying to encourage the Christians in Ephesus with a bigger view of the church that there's a high value on God's plan for his capital C church, a bigger view of their mission, and a bigger view of God. There is so much in the book of Ephesians. I mean, even just, again, talking about how the natural overflow of God's activity in your life will affect your marriage, will affect your relationship with your kids and your parents. Uh, He speaks to employers and employees. There's a lot of incredible wisdom in the book of Ephesians, but one of my favorite verses there is found in Chapter 3, verse 22, it says, Now all glory to God, who is able through His mighty power, not through your massive amount of faith. No, no. Jesus said only faith the size of a mustard seed. No, no. It's not faith in faith. It's faith in God. His mighty power at work within us to accomplish infinitely more than we might ask or think. I love it that even for those of us that think we have really big imaginations, that God's like, (laughs) like that's child's play. I honestly wonder if we can even begin to imagine what God can do with a life that he's fully surrendered to. We're in the Old Testament, one of the, one of the books of Chronicles where, where it says that God, God's eyes search the whole earth looking for those who are fully devoted to him so that he can strengthen them, empower them. So I think when it comes to a verse like this, I don't think it's just a willy-nilly, like, oh, that's a nice little promise for me to claim as a Christian. No, no, I think, I think that God is looking for people who are fully devoted to him, who, who, who want to honor him, who want to please him, who are so grateful for his grace, who are so grateful for the cross. They don't want to abuse it. They want to respond to it. I, I, think, I think we'd be amazed at what God can do and wants to do through people that are fully devoted to him. I don't know how often we see that, and so I think we tend to then just limit our expectations of what God can do. The book of Philippians is again written by Paul. This time he's writing from a prison. In fact, quite a few of the letters were written from prison. Sometimes you're wondering if Paul was, like if, it's like he just seems to take a break from prison every now and then, to go and do a mission trip and then back in prison. Remarkable, honestly remarkable. But Philippians... I mean, I want to say it's one of my favorite books. There's so many, but, but Philippians, there's just so much in there that I really do appreciate and love. And, and this was the first church on the European continent, started by Paul. And again, he's writing from a Roman prison, trying to address some of the, the again, some of the tension, some of the, the, the inner challenges relationally amongst the Philippians. And again, he's trying to encourage them 
uh, as they're going through suffering because of opposition, because of persecution from, from people in the city. And so he, he encourages them. To, I mean, first of all, in Philippians 1 verse 6, it says, hey, hey, God is faithful. He who began a good work in you, he's faithful to complete it. Like you can be secure. In chapter 2, he goes on to explain how, hey, let's model ourselves after the humility shown by Jesus. Like if you think you, you're too good, listen, just take a look at Jesus. And you're going to change your attitude. You're going to be a little bit more humble. You're going to fight a little bit more for unity. And you're going to be okay with serving. You're not going to think that service is beneath you. Chapter 4 in Philippians is, has got to be one of my favorite chapters in the sense that it's probably impacted me the most where again Paul's writing from jail and he's like guys I know things are tough but you can rejoice anyway you can find joy and peace supernatural peace in God and he goes on to explain how, how even when you're going through a tough time you can still pray you can thank God for what he has done and as we do that the peace of pastors understanding will guard your heart in your mind. Then he goes on to elaborate further as to how we, I think he's saying how we can strengthen them also. So we're saying, okay, whatever's good, holy, lovely, pure, right, whatever's life-giving, think on those things. That's kind of from chapter four, verse eight onwards. And again, he's saying, and you'll experience the peace of God. Then he goes on to say just after that, hey, I know what it is to be cold and hungry, to be, to be well-fed or to be hungry, to be warm or to be cold. And it's in that context of contentment that he then quotes a verse that we sometimes quote out of context where he says in verse 13 that I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. He's saying in the context of suffering, in the context of not always having enough, he says, hey, but it's okay. I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. It's a great, great little letter that is well worth reading. If we fly over to Colossians, again, it's written by Paul. He was in prison. And he addresses, again, some false teachings. And he emphasizes the absolute supremacy of Christ. Like some of the language used there to describe how Jesus was there at the beginning. Everything was created through him, for him. It gives you a greater appreciation of how the creator would allow the created to crucify him. That Christ forgives sins. That religious rules and regulations count for nothing but that ethical life that bears God's own image, counts for everything. And how Christ-like living affects relationships of all kinds. In other words, he's saying, you will be changed. You will be impacted. If we're going to, be, if we're going to receive the grace of God, if we're going to receive and, and enter into that relationship, we are going to be changed. First and second Thessalonians were written to a group of brand new Christians. So it's a brand new church, brand new Christians. Paul, Paul planted this church and then because of some circumstances, he's like whisked away. And so, and so they were left without you know, real discipleship and mentoring. And so he's writing this letter into that context. And again, he's trying to strengthen them and encourage them that suffering is a part of the Christian life. I don't know if you've noticed how often suffering comes up. Holiness regarding sexual matters, the resurrection of the Christian dead and readiness for Christ's coming. And by the way, he challenged them against being lazy. In 2 Thessalonians 3 verse 10, it says, those unwilling to work, that's the key word there, especially in our South African context, those unwilling to work will not get to eat. He's like, guys, be diligent. Do everything that you can, again, depending on your context. First and second, Timothy and Titus are three um, short-ish letters that Paul is writing to, to young uh, pastors. 
And it's kind of like being a fly on the wall as he speaks into uh, leadership challenges, dealing with false teachers, dealing with people that are looking down on them because they're young. Um, Again, suffering and various challenges in just trying to to lead the church. Then I mentioned earlier the letter of Philemon. Philemon? Philemon? I don't know how else we can... And again, Paul's writing this letter, and, and this is interesting for people that have maybe questioned the Bible's view of slavery and why, and why at, a, at a very superficial glance, in some cases it looks as though the Bible didn't speak into it or that it was okay. Well, if you read and understand this little letter to Philemon, you would see how radical and countercultural and revolutionary um, the, this new fledgling Christianity uh, was was, was challenging the status quo around slavery. Bearing in mind that at that stage, it is estimated by historians that in the Roman Empire, there existed roughly 60 million slaves. So you're talking about something that was popular. I mean, when the world's population was so much smaller than what it is now. That's a massive, massive, massive portion. And so what happens here is that Paul, Paul has met a runaway slave. So Philemon's, Philemon had a slave, his name was Onesimus, not a very popular name nowadays. He'd stolen from his boss and he'd run away. He meets Paul, I think it was in a prison, Am of it? Yeah, they were, again, like, just go hang out with Paul in prison. Um, and he gets saved. And again, it's interesting that it's not like, okay, cool, I've got a ticket to heaven. No, no, he gets changed because salvation will change you. A relationship with God will change you. You become a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come, like you will be changed. And so Paul actually sends Onesimus back to Philemon along with a letter asking him to accept him no longer as a slave, but as a brother. I don't know if you can begin to imagine how radical they would have been writing that into that context. In fact, earlier in Galatians 3 verse 28, Paul thunders that there is no longer Jew or Gentile, slave or free, Male or female, and again, you have to understand, if you think the gender issue is sensitive now, you have no idea what that would have been like 2,000 years ago. For you are all one in Christ. And so, in verses 12 to 16 of uh, the book of Philemon, there, isn't, there aren't chapters because it's just this one short little chapter. It says, I'm sending him, Onesimus, back to you, no longer as a slave, but better than a slave, as a dear brother. He's very dear to me. But even dearer to you, both as a man and as a brother in the Lord, welcome him as you would welcome me. C- can you understand the, the level of value, the dignity that he's placing onto, onto this man? Hebrews is an incredible, incredible book. It's so rich, not just with theology, but, but with hope, where it speaks to a confidence that we can have in our relationship with God. This is one verse where it says that we can now come boldly into the presence of God. We, we can approach his throne. Uh, again, the, the occasion is that the community was probably discouraged because of suffering again, and in some cases, perhaps from doubts about whether Jesus really had taken care of sin because, because the people that, that are being written to him, we don't know who wrote the book of Hebrews, by the way. It's the only book in the New Testament that, where there's no real confidence about who wrote it. Um, but there was still this tension and this wrestling over the old Jewish system and whether or not it's possible that Jesus really could have fulfilled everything. And so some of the emphases in the book are that God has spoken his absolutely final word in his son. To abandon Christ is to abandon God altogether. 
Christ is superior to everything that went before, including the whole priestly system. Again, you have to understand the value placed on the previous priestly system to understand that that's a big deal to be saying something like that. And that God's people can have full confidence in God's son, the perfect high priest who gives all people ready access to God. It's a rich, rich, rich book. Then James is, is a fairly short book that's just it's punchy and it, and it goes from, from one description of wisdom to another, to another, to another. We're going to be doing a whole series on this starting in a couple of weeks' time. It was written by James, the half-brother of Jesus, and, uh, and, it, and it's known as the wisdom book of the New Testament, very similar to Proverbs, which has which got almost, almost these like short, punchy uh, expressions of what, of what faith in action looks like. Just out of interest... James' tradition holds was also known as old camel knees because he had such thick calluses on his knees from his habit of prayer. I think that's a pretty good nickname to have for a pretty good reason. So it emphasizes some things along the lines of endurance and hardship, responsible Christian living, special concern that believers practice what they preach, and simply living together in harmony. It talks about not... not uh, not showing favoritism to people. It talks about how true religion is caring for the widows and the orphan. How it's sin to know what God wants you to do and not to do it. But don't just be hearers of the word, but be doers of the word. Don't, don't just, you know, to, to not do this, to look in the Bible as though it's a mirror, to see what's wrong with you, and then just to leave yourself the way. Anyway, there is loads in the book of James. We'll be coming back to that in a few weeks' time. First and second Peter was written by Peter to various Christians. First Peter is, again, primarily focused on encouraging Christians that are suffering. Second Peter encourages believers to grow in godliness while warning them of how to deal with false teachers. Again, some of the key themes are suffering, obviously practical living in our relationship with God and how that influences our lives, but also the amount of false doctrine that was constantly being addressed, constantly being addressed. And if, and if that's how it was 2,000 years ago, guys, let's not... Let's not kid ourselves. There's, there's a lot of stuff to think through as we filter out junk that is so readily available to us. And almost coming to an end, we see 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, which was written by John. So he's also the same uh, author who wrote the book of John, so the gospel according to John, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And he's also the guy that wrote the book of Revelation, so next week, so, so we've kept a whole week for the book of Revelation. Come back for that. He also wrote that book. In fact, after Paul, he wrote the, the, he's the, he's the second most, he's credited with the second largest volume of writing in the New Testament, which is just interesting. And so in 1 and 2 John, he addresses false teaching that had crept in. In 3 John or 3 John, which is just a short little book, he basically addresses and challenges a lack of hospitality. Hospitality is also a theme that comes throughout the epistles, by the way. Um, but I just love that one verse in 1 John, 1 verse 9, where it says that if we confess our sins to him, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all wickedness. And before we move into the very last book, let me just also encourage you that, that 1 John in particular has challenged me like few other writings in the Bible around the theme of love. And how to love one another. Um, how to love those that are difficult. In fact, and, and I'm not saying that this is accurate, but I remember someone saying a long time ago, they only love God as much as the person you love the least. And I'm not saying that that's accurate. Theologically, probably isn't. But I tell you, you read First John and you're like, yeah, it's like, maybe. How can you say you love God who you can't see if you can't love the person next to you who you can see? Like, 
There's some stuff in there that'll challenge you. And then lastly, the little book of Jude. Jude was also the half-brother of Jesus. So James and Jude were half-brothers of Jesus. I don't know about you. I'm not sure I would have wanted to grow up being Jesus' half-brother. Like that's a pretty, that's a pretty high bar to be evaluated against, right? Like, like you can never say, yeah, but, oh, Jesus, okay. <laughs> Just give me the hiding, okay. But in all seriousness, it's amazing it's amazing to think that Jude, like, didn't, like he didn't, he didn't leverage that. He didn't take advantage of that. In fact, in the first verse, it says this letter is from Jude, a slave of Jesus Christ, and a brother of James. Like, he doesn't even refer to himself as a brother of Jesus. How deeply impacted must James and Jude have been to not leverage? I mean, come on, guys. If you're on social media, it's like, it's hard not to find people posturing with like, hanging with my bestie, who I met like a minute ago. But you know, like, like, like people want to be seen with people. People want to be connected to people. People want to be known as network. Please be careful that you don't do that. Okay, can I just warn you now? Like, it's dangerous. But anyway, that's a side note and a bit of a pet peeve. Focus, Jason. So, so it stands out to me that James, does, sorry, that James, neither James nor Jude take advantage of their claim to fame. I'm a slave of Jesus. And again, tradition holds that both James and Jude were martyred because of their belief in Jesus. Like surely if there was anyone who would have doubted or who would have questioned or would have undermined Jesus' credibility as the Messiah surely would have been those who lived with him. And by the way, it wasn't always like that. I mean, again, if you read the Gospels, you see that, that there was a time where, he's, where Jesus' family, so his brothers and mother, etc., came around trying to get him out of a house because he'd been so busy and he was running himself crazy and they were worried about his mental health. They were like worried that he was, that he was burning the candle at both ends. They, they, weren't, they weren't convinced yet. Something had to have happened. I believe it was the resurrection that so radically convinced his disciples and his own brothers, that they were willing to die for him. And so this little book of, of Jude just basically addresses a, a heresy that was taking place where people were distorting the message of grace. And again, I just think, how pertinent to the 21st century? Apparently there were some who were teaching that being saved by grace gave them license to sin since their sins would no longer be held against them. So, so there was like this cheap grace. And so, and so again, Jude and, and, and others throughout their letters were trying to correct some of this misunderstanding. It was like, no, 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 no. It's, it was free, but it's not cheap. Cost Jesus everything. And if we get that, we can't help but be changed by it. We can't, like, if you're not grateful for it, then you haven't got it yet. Just so you know. If you're not grateful for grace, you haven't got it yet. Like, like you haven't been open to receiving it yet. It's only when we realize what we deserved, when we realize how, how, how short we fall, that we can even begin to be grateful for the fact that we were shown mercy, which means we didn't get the negative that we did deserve. And on top of that, we were shown grace, which means that we got more than we could ever deserve. It'll change you. It'll melt your heart. It's not going to feed shame and condemnation. It'll feed appreciation. And, and gratitude to the extent that we will want to try again, that we will want to change, that we will want to do better. Does this make sense? Yes. 